Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Bones, welcome to 10% Truth. Thanks for joining us on the channel. Oh, it's my pleasure, old chap. Yes, thank you very much. And um, I'm having my uh, my tea this morning, and this is in honor of uh, of my friends in the UK. And I don't know if you can see it, but that's the 29 Fighter Squadron crest. Very nice. The mug there, and that was the uh, that was a tornado squadron that I was on in the UK. And um, I don't know if you've seen this, but um, there was a great video that came out at the beginning of the pandemic and it was an English gentleman who was uh, sitting on his couch drinking a beer and he hears the zoom meeting call go off in the background he goes oh, time for the meeting so he jumps off the couch he pulls on a pre-made suit that's got the jacket and tie already already built in as velcro up the back sits down pours his beer into a very fine china teacup and he starts drinking with his pinky in. <laughs> but this has actually got tea in it, so that's don't worry. Real, that's real tea. Okay, I, we'll, we'll take your word for it. Um, and I'm drinking my tea out of a cup with uh, cats on it. So Okay, not, I just not, want to do a, a contents check there and just make sure there's no foam <laughs> on the top. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> so you, you've already told us you were on 29 Squadron uh, flying the tornado. So yeah. just for the audience at home, then I'm going to ask you to give you give a quick introduction um, on yeah. your career and what you did. But but you are obviously Canadian, um, and yeah. you you are on the channel. Um, we're probably going to split this into you know two, maybe more calls, interviews. We'll see how we we'll see how things go. But you're going to talk about your experience as a fighter pilot flying for the Royal Canadian Air Force and on exchange with the Royal Air Force here in the UK. Yeah. With that said, then Bones, give us a quick in, quick intro. Then, what 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 did your career look like? Oh, can of worms. <laughs> but uh, first of all, I'm I'm actually uh, wearing a green flying suit, and and this was the um, the flying suit that I wore into combat on my last uh, on my last tour of combat. And the interesting part of it is that it's actually an American flying suit. It's not a Canadian flying suit. So when we deployed to Italy. Uh, we went there about nine months prior to hostilities breaking out in Kosovo. So we were there in the summer of 98 and we had blue flying suits. So I was the, um, on the advance party, I was the, uh, what we call the OPI, the officer of primary interest for the deployment, not the squadron commander, but the, the guy who took care of it. And then there was a team, well, various teams from our upper headquarters who were there as well getting things spun up for the deployment of the jets. And so I'm talking to the logistics officer and I said, um, you might've noticed that we're all wearing blue flying suits. I said, 
what's the plan here? Like, if we do have to eject, because airplanes were getting shot down over Bosnia too, you know, before the war started. I said, you know, are we supposed to go and fly and find a blueberry bush to hide in, or what is it? And she goes, oh, I never thought of that. <laughs> so she scurried over to the American side of the base and bought a whole bunch of uh, American flying suits off them. And, and fortunately, they had enough stocks, uh, you know, to to equip us. So we all got U.S. flying suits, and then I think it took. Well, that was that was nine. No, sorry, no. That that was two years before I retired from the Canadian Air Force, and by the time I retired, they still didn't have Canadian green flying suits. Really? Yeah, I mean, it was you know, and and that's one you know, I mean, that's a funny story, but there were very serious stories of things that we totally screwed up on. So that's the downside of the Canadian Air Force. But anyway, um, I'll I'll get back. So I was actually born in England. Um, my father. Well, I'm I'm a hundred percent genetically British, so both my parents were British. Uh, my father served in the British Army and the Royal Engineers during World War II. Uh, he ended up in the Far East in uh, in Malaya, uh, now now known as Malaysia. And when they demobbed him, I think it was 1946, they asked him where he wanted to go. So they said, you know, do you want to go back to the UK where his mother was? Or, or we can we can send you to any of the colonies, you know. So you could have gone to New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, Canada. And uh, his mother told him it was very rough still in the UK in the post-war years. You know, they still had rationing. There weren't enough jobs for all of the all the uh, people that were coming back. So he decided to go to Canada, um, even though he didn't really know anybody in Canada anymore. So he settled in Canada, and then in 1958. Um, as part of his ongoing education, he went back to the UK to uh, Ipswich in Suffolk uh, for a, a technical course. And he had married my mother uh, about four years prior. Um, so they had me when I was in England. So I was actually born in, in England. I came back to Canada when I was a, uh, a baby. I was one year old. So I grew up as a Canadian in Canada. Um, I, I was always interested in airplanes, but it was never... It was never sort of my primary focus. I guess, like many people, I thought, well, I really don't have much of a chance of, you know, making a career of it because I hadn't, you know, I hadn't been through air cadets and I hadn't um, done any flying whatsoever, even gliders or whatever. So I thought, okay, well, there's, there's no way I could do that. But um, I was a passionate skier and I had gone skiing out in the west of Canada and we took a, a day to go helicopter skiing. So I just thought this was unbelievable you know that you could fly in a helicopter lock yourself on the top of a mountain and then go skiing down so i thought oh i've got to do this so that was the real motivator to get me into flying so i um <clears throat> i i had been traveling in the uk i think i was about 18 at the time and because i had my uk uh, citizenship i actually applied for the raf when i was in the uk so i went through biggin hill and that's where they used to do the air crew selections in Biggin Hill. And I knew about that from, you know, the, the famous Battle of Britain movie. Um, so I thought that was pretty great. And <laughs> so I, I went through the first day of the application procedure. And at the end of the first day, um, they either clear you off to go to the, to the mess and drink beer with your buddies, or they ask you to come to the uh, officer commanding's office. So I was in the, in the office with about uh, probably six or seven other candidates waiting to be called into the OC's office. And we looked around and three quarters of us had beards 
And we all sort of went, yeah, maybe we should have shaved the beard off before we came in here. <laughs> so that was the bye-bye uh, uh, interview with the OC. But I, I went back to Canada and then I applied for the Canadian Air Force and I shaved my beard off this time. And um, the first day of the selection process, um, there's a lot of written tests and you do this quasi simulator, which is, I think it was a, based on a 1950s link simulator, you know, it really was hokey stuff. But the written test, I sat down and I started laughing and they were verbatim, word for word, the written test from the RAF, like every single word in the right order. And I think they had been the same since the World War II. And I don't know if you're familiar with the, it's called the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan. So this is a big training plan to train, uh, um, you know, British and Commonwealth air crew, but in Canada, you know, instead of being in a war environment. Yeah. So it was a huge, huge uh, process. So I think they probably just took the took the uh, written exams from that. And, and now I'm doing it in, uh, you know, 1980s. <laughs> it was hilarious. So anyway, I, I managed to fool them and um, they engaged me as a pilot. I uh, went through all the pilot training we do. Um, well, first we do the, uh, the basic officer training and, and that's uh, Army, Navy and Air Force. We're all mixed in together and then we split off. Um, so I had to wait, uh, when I finished the basic officer training, I had to wait a couple of months before my uh, flying training would start. So I went out to the East coast to a base called Shearwater, which is near Halifax. And I, um, I just did odd jobs around there, you know, waiting for my flying training to start. Um, at this point I was aiming towards flying helicopters and they had, they had quite a few helicopters there. They had the seeking helicopters that embark on the uh, ships. And then they had uh, twin Hueys um, for general purpose uh, and search and rescue. So I was able to fly in both of those. Uh, they had the tracker, which is a maritime patrol aircraft with uh, great big radial piston engines, which was great fun. And, but they also had the T-33, um, the, uh, the jet trainer from the 1950s. So I managed to get a ride in this T-33. And I'm telling this young buck pilot, uh, I said, yeah, yeah. I said, I, you know, I, I really look forward to flying in this thing, but I, I really want to fly helicopters. And he looked at me like, what? <laughs> so he took me up in this T-33 and we're doing aerobatics and formation flying and pulling G. And I went, yeah, you're right. This is what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's how I ended up steering towards fighters. So we go through flying training. Um, we do, we start out by about three months on the... Um, a Beechcraft Musketeer, which is a piston engine, uh, you know, civilian patterned aircraft. And then we went on to the Tudor, which is the uh, the jet aircraft, which is still used by the Snowbirds. And they were built in the 1960s. So these things are very, very old. And, but the, the Tudor was a great airplane. And we get our wings on that. And then we proceed up to Cold Lake for the, uh, uh, for the fighter lead-in training, which is done on the F-5. And from there... At the time, the we we had um, uh, we had three different operational fighter aircraft uh, back in the early 1980s, and that was the F-5, which was used operationally, uh, the F-104, and the F-101, the Voodoo. So the 101 was used for air defense, the 104 was ground attack in Germany, and the F-5 was multi-purpose, primarily closer support for the army. Um, but by the time I got to the the fighter lead-in training portion, 
the 104, I just missed the last 104 course by one course. So if I'd been there a course earlier, I could have gone on the 104, which is based in, uh, in Baden in Germany. Uh, the Voodoo had already closed and the F-18 had not opened up yet. So I knew I was going to fly the F-5. So I started on the F-5 um, in Bagotville in Quebec. And um, prior to that point, all our training had been done on the prairies, which is the, you know, the flatlands in Canada. Uh, Bagotville is up in central Quebec. So it's about uh, probably 500 kilometers north of Montreal. Um, so it's it's still very much central. It's not considered northern Canada, but it's central. But the terrain is is quite spectacular. They have, they have beautiful uh, mountains and fjords and, and lakes and stuff. So after spending three years on in the prairies, it was it was a huge uh, breath of fresh air to come into that region and to be able to fly there because you know we did predominantly low level flying. Uh, the other interesting thing about Bagotville is uh, the women were absolutely beautiful. So. Uh, I spent, well, I, I spent two years in Bagotville, but I met my future wife just before I had to leave. So we ended up getting married. Really. Yeah, so they, they, and then the other thing about Bagotville was the drivers were terrible. So when I first got there, they said, yeah, they said, you'll either end up uh, in a car crash or married at the end of your tour. And it's like, well, that's not great. That's not really what I had planned. <laughs> but I guess it's better than a car crash. So, <laughs> so I did my, um, um, my first tour on the F-5, and, you know, of course, your first operational aircraft is always going to have a special place in your heart. So, and I didn't know anything else, so I thought this thing is fantastic. You know, we went all over the place. Uh, we were, we weren't really under the eye of headquarters. So we had an enormous amount of flexibility on, on what we did, where we went, and that kind of stuff. Because the F-18s were already being implemented, so they'd sort of forgotten about the F-5, which is perfect. So um, our primary role was actually to support the army. So the airplane was bought to be a close air support um, airplane to support the army. And it was probably the worst airframe that you could possibly choose to do that role. You know, it had no fuel. Uh, the wings are too small. It couldn't maneuver very well. It uh, had no survivability. So it was, a, it, it was a political decision to buy it. But it was a lot of fun. <laughs> So we would roar around all over the place. Uh, we did a lot of air combat, even though, you know, uh, it wasn't a very capable aircraft at air combat. But um, I don't know. Did you get the picture that I sent you of the uh, of the air refueling and the uh, formation yeah, did, of the F5s? Yeah, and, yeah. With the F5s. yeah. So if you could if you could flash that up, I'll uh, I'll build a bit on that. But um, we also went to northern Norway, and this is in the height of the Cold War. You know, in the in the uh, mid nineteen eighties. So we would deploy to an airfield called Andoya, which is above the Arctic Circle. I think it's probably about 67 degrees north, something like that. And um, we would fly out of there. We would regularly see Soviet airplanes coming down the, uh, the Norwegian coast. And we were usually there as part of a big NATO exercise. So, you know, there were uh, Army, Navy, uh, air assets all over the place from various countries. And, of course, the... the um, well, there would be Russian fishing boats, but they would have, you know, 30 or 40 uh, large antennae on these boats. So they were obviously spy boats. So, you know, you you very much knew that you were close to the action there. And, you know, some of the some of the exercises were fairly realistic. And I, this is when the doubt started creeping in and thinking, well, you know, if we go to if we actually go to war with the Soviets, 
did they really expect me to do this in the F5? I and mean, we didn't even have a radar warning receiver in that thing. Wow. You know, so if you were lit up by a radar, you wouldn't even know. Well, I guess it's probably a good thing. You know, you don't die tense up, but it was just ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> And we had no navigation. You know, the only navigation thing we had was attacking, but that doesn't work at low level. So it was purely, um, uh, you know, watching the map and and flying off heading and timing and outdoor features. So preparing the maps was a huge ordeal. You know, you had to you had to glue strips of maps together so that you didn't, you know, obscure your whole cockpit. And, you know, you had to make sure the headings and the speeds and everything were, were correct. So it was usually about a, an hour to an hour and a half process before you went flying to, to get this all organized. And our, our squadron commander at the time, he was a great guy, rest in peace, unfortunately, but um, very funny, but, um, you know, and he could make a joke. So he starts doing his map and then he gets called out to do squadron commander business. So one of the guys uh, cuts a big chunk out of his map and substitutes a different piece of the coastline into his map. <laughs> <laughs> And he was leading the formation. So we're all sitting back there going, yeah, when, when's he going to figure it out, you know, that he's lost? <laughs> so we get back down and and in, in dry humor fashion, he goes, okay, who glued the coastline onto my map? And he was following it with his thumb. You know, you, you sort of track track crawl with your thumb up the map and he, and he feels the ridge where he glued the piece onto the map. So he peels it off and he goes, oh, you buggers. <laughs> Yeah, so it was all good fun until they start shooting. Yeah. <laughs> T- tell me a bit more about that Bef- before you sort of progress too far into your into your career. Um, t- tell me a little bit more about the process of getting fast jets. So I'm going to take you back sort of a couple of minutes yeah. to where you said you, you flew the T-33, then you decided you were going to go fast jet. You, you tracked fast yeah. jets, obviously. Um, and there were three operational types and sort of, you know, two of them weren't really an option. So it was a foregone conclusion which one you go to. Um, at that point in time, were you thinking about the Hornet? You said it was nice, it was nice that the Air Force had kind of forgotten you while they were betting in the, the new Hornet. But, but were you thinking about that? Did you have your eyes set on it? Did Was was flying fast jets more than you had expected it to be, um, better than you had expected it to be? Were, were there parts of it that were challenging? Were there parts of it you didn't particularly enjoy? Yes to all of those questions. Okay, there we go. We'll move on. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but, uh, but I'll address it a little bit because that, that's an excellent perspective. So um, the, the really interesting part was about, I think it was about two months before our graduation, our wings graduation off the Tudor, um, they would announce which airplanes were available for our course, you know, so they would say there was X number of Hercules, you know, Y number of whatever. And they said there's one fighter slot. And I can't remember how many were left on my course um, because we, we split off the helicopter guys earlier and we also had Dutch pilots on our course as well. So I'm thinking from the Canadians, there was probably about a dozen uh, left and there was only going to be one fighter slot. And I knew that I wasn't, you know, typically the top graduate of the course gets his choice and then everyone else gets, you know, whatever they can, they can fit for you. So I thought, well, okay, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get the fighter slot because I wasn't the top guy. Um, but as it turns out, the top guy didn't want to go fighters, uh, so they gave it to me. So I got it by default, and I was the only, I was the only pilot off my course that got onto the fighters. So it was very, you know, it was very competitive uh, to get onto the fighters. 
Um, now, what what were your other so, yeah, uh, so, were, were the parts of it that you didn't enjoy? Was it a challenge, or, or I, I guess the question I should ask was not a closed question, but how much of a challenge was it? Yeah. So, are you referring to the to the training part, or or in general, one fighters? Yeah. So the the training part, you know, to the to the point where you are are flying the F five. You you were flying the Tutor. Yeah. It, you you described it as an old airplane. It's a bit like the T thirty seven, isn't it? It's uh, the Tweet, you know, the Cessna T thirty seven. Similar design, and I don't know. They may Absolutely, even be yeah. related, but the, the Jet Provost. Yeah, so the Jet Provost, yeah. So, yes. so beautiful airplane, that absolutely gorgeous lines. <laughs> I'm saying that facetiously if you didn't. But anyway, yeah. yeah, so these are all, you know, sort of straight wing, uh, um, you know, jet uh, trainer aircraft. And then the F5 was, um, it's actually an E category airplane. So the approach speed is so high on this thing that it's, um, I don't know if you're familiar with ABCD and E category airplanes. It's all based on the approach on the approach mm. speed so e is the highest and and i don't think there are any you know other than the f5 there's a couple of uh, civilian mortal fours that are still flying but they're probably the only e category uh, airplanes left flying in the western hemisphere and then of course the russians have theirs but so anyway the the f5 um uh, it was it was a fairly straightforward airplane to fly and it didn't have any systems in it so it wasn't like you were distracted so um Sorry to to drift back and forth here. The F eighteen was the opposite. The F eighteen was extremely easy to fly under norm normal circumstances, but there were so many systems that needed to be operated by a single pilot. So we didn't have navigators. So we ran the radar, the weapon systems, the communications. You know, one nine yards. So it was it was one hundred eighty degree switch. But the F five was a good lead in for that because you know you had to be very careful what you're doing in the airplane. Otherwise, you could crash very quickly. And then the F-18, it led you into false sense of security. So, um, you know, it had another thing. It had auto trim and auto flaps. So if you weren't careful and you didn't have the power up enough, uh, you could go from 300 knots to 100 knots without even realizing it. You know, and you look outside and the nose is all jacked up in the air from the angle of attack. And you go, oh, my God, what's going on here? Well, it's just, you know, the the flying characteristics are so benign in the F-18 that you could get yourself into trouble, you know, with a false sense of security. So getting back to the F5, um, when I was going through the the um, F5 transition course, which was it was almost a year, I guess. No, I guess it was about nine months altogether. So it was you know it was fairly intense because they had to teach you to fly the F5 and teach you how to be a fighter pilot at the same time. So uh, during that time, we had an inordinate number of crashes in the fighter force not just on the f5 but also the uh, the 104 as well and i'm starting to think like this is not good you know what why are so many of these airplanes crashing with experienced pilots in them too and there's you know the the primary reason was because of our low level flying environment you know it only takes two seconds if you're not paying attention and you're in the trees so that was the primary uh, reason for that but it certainly got my attention and there were two experienced instructors on the f-104 we still had the uh, f-104 training squadron in in um old lake because they weren't accepting new students to go on it but they still had to recycle uh, older guys so they they kept flying they were still flying when i was there and there were two very experienced uh, instructors that went out on a dark and dirty afternoon and they never came back and it took them months to find their crash they but 
they were flying around low level and they hit a frozen lake, which is a standard thing to do in Cold Lake. And these were very experienced guys. You know, they were second tour fighter pilots. So that's when the sort of doubt started creeping in. And, you know, I'm thinking, and, and, you know, typically fighter pilots think that the first reaction to a crash is, oh, these guys screwed up. You know, it's not, it's not going to be a mechanical thing. Uh, it's not going to be hitting a bird. The pilot screwed up. And that's our self-defense mechanism to say it could never happen to me because I'm the greatest fighter pilot in the world, right? So that's your your defense mechanism. But then I started thinking, you know, this is this is serious stuff. You know, this isn't this isn't messing around. And we're not even at war yet, you know. So um the F5, uh simple airplane to operate, relatively easy to fly, um, no equipment in it whatsoever. So no navigation gear, no uh, radar warning receiver. Um, we had one radio, one TAC in, one transponder. So it was a nightmare even operating it in civilian airspace because typically something would fail. So we typically flew around with two airplanes in close formation. And if one one transponder wasn't working, the other guy would use his and all that kind of stuff. But we had a lot of fun, you know, so we, we flew all over. Um, the, the One of the the best things that we did, we worked with a U.S. Navy um, reserve squadron, and they they flew the uh, F-4S model, which is relatively unknown. And and you know when you can flash that picture up, I can talk about it a bit more. But they um, the F-4S, uh, it's called the S because it's got uh, leading edge maneuvering slats. So these were uh, you could deploy them at high speed and use them at high speed. And they made the airplane much more maneuverable because the S model was uh, designed almost entirely for air to air. So they could do air to ground, but they, they didn't do it. It was primarily a fleet defense aircraft. And when they cleaned that airplane off, you know, took the fuel tanks off and we took our fuel tanks off in the F-5, we could have great uh, dogfights against them. And they loved it. These are mostly ex-Vietnam era pilots. They were airline pilots who flew the uh, F-4 on the weekends. And they just had a hoot, and we did too. <laughs> Let me try and find that picture, Bones. Just give us a yeah. Second. I'll, I'll I'll keep on blathering on here while you're okay. while you're looking. So we used to um, we used to go down to uh, Yuma, Arizona, which is actually a Marine Corps air station, and we would fly out of Yuma and do air combat with these F fours, and then we would go out in the evening and eat nachos and and drink beer and that kind of stuff, and then in the summer. They would come up to Cold Lake, so we would deploy from Bagotville back to Cold Lake. Uh, we had an air combat maneuvering uh, range there, uh, but the big attraction for them was the hunting. So they would come up and do hunting and fishing, uh, you know, in the in the great wilderness of Cold Lake, which they couldn't do in in San Diego, California. Yeah. Okay. Let me let me pull it up because sec. So what we're looking at here is a formation of um, four F fives, with one of them being plugged in and the two uh, U.S. Navy Reserve Squadron uh, F-4Ss. And the refueling airplane is a Ka-3. A Ka-3, uh, I think the official designator was a Sky Warrior, but it was known as the Whale. And uh, this airplane, um, it was a Cold War, like 1950s era nuclear bomber that they flew off the aircraft carrier. And it had no ejection seats in it. So they had like a sunroof that they used to open for the launch and for the recovery. And if they were going to go into the drink, they would unstrap and try and bail out through the sunroof. And I, I think they operated with a 
crew of three, if not four. So, um, you know, to think that they flew that airplane, which is the size of a small airliner, first of all, off the carrier, and secondly, without ejection seats is just unbelievable. So we virtually had to do air refueling because our airplanes were stripped off. And the F-5, uh, it's it's carrying a um, electronic um, pod on the left wing tip, and it's uh, nothing on the right. So those are normally used for sidewinder missiles. But uh, we we typically flew with a tip tank, uh, fuel tanks, and then either one external fuel tank or two, you know, under the wings. And the F-4s, uh, they're cleaned off as well, and they would typically fly with underwing fuel tanks as well. So when we took off the fuel tanks, we didn't have a lot of fuel to play with. So we would get airborne, get up to altitude, we would refuel off the A3, then we would go out and do our air combat and then uh, come back and recover. So the the refueling was uh, was critical to get anything worthwhile out of the trip because the F-5s, we would have been up there for half an hour and had to come home. The, F, uh, the F-4s, uh, those S models, a lot of them ended up in the RAF. So after the Falklands War was finished, uh, the RAF sent their uh, F-4s down to the Falkland Islands uh, for air defense, and they decided to backfill them with these uh, U.S. Navy, U.S. Marine Corps F-4Ss. So I think it was 74 Squadron that ended up uh, picking up these uh, ex-Navy F-4s, and they operated them for, I don't know, maybe five or seven years until we're until the tornadoes started coming in. Yeah, I didn't know that. I, I knew that they yeah. got, they, the, the early ones they got were J models. I didn't know they got the S models as well. So yeah, uh, it's a good yeah. bit of history. Um, yeah, and they were, and and the S might have been an unofficial designator. It was basically a J, but I think the difference was it had the, you know, the maneuvering slats. So instead of uh, leading edge slats for, for approach and landing, you could actually uh, use them at high speed in IG. Yeah. yeah. I think I believe call, that's true. they call that the soft wing. I think don't they? They, they call it there's the yeah, hard yeah. the hard wing, which is no, yeah. and then the soft wing. Yeah. 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 Bones, tell us a little bit about then. Um, I, I wanted to go back and talk about the F five in the close mm-hmm. air support mode or the army support mode. I don't think you actually said close support, close air support. I think you said it was to support yeah. the army, and maybe those are two different things. Yeah. But but um, first of all, uh, what was the what were you going to put on the airplane? Bombs, rockets? Uh, how were you going to support the army in, in the airplane? I mean, you've already said it wasn't it wasn't the right white airplane for the role, but and that was a political thing. But but how were you trying to do it? Yeah. So so getting getting back to the decision by them, um, the well, in typical fashion, you know, there's because our armed forces were integrated. So Army, Navy, and Air Force were all considered the Canadian Armed Forces. And we're all supposed to be one big happy family and get along with each other. But of course, the reality is always different. So the Air Force wanted to increase their presence, despite the fact that we probably had 12 fighter squadrons back at the time. So they managed to convince the Army that the Army needed close air support. (laughs) I don't think it was an Army initiative to say, hey, we need close air support. The Air Force said, you guys really need close air support, and we'd be happy to furnish that for you. So the Army said, yeah, sure, you know, like, uh, we know what it is. You know, Vietnam had just finished, and it's important, you know. So the Air Force goes back to the, the national defense people and says, the Army says they want close air support, and we want to do it for them. So... You know, national defense says, yeah, sure, you know, take it out of your budget. No, 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 not not out of our budget. Ask them from the army budget. <laughs> so then the politicians got involved and, and they actually looked at the A4 and the A7, uh, which would have been great. Close, well, that's really what their job was, is close air support. 
but they weren't willing to build them under license in Canada, and especially in Quebec, which has inordinate political influence in Canada. So um, they were built under license by uh, Canadair, which became Bombardier later on in uh, in Cartierville, Quebec. And they also they built them for the uh, the Netherlands Air Force as well. So the Dutch Air Force flew uh, Canadian F-5s, but much better than the ones we had. They, uh, they had a moving map, which was actually paper. <laughs> oh, really? And and they had uh, RWR and a couple other things. I think they had maneuvering uh, flaps, whereas ours weren't maneuvering. But anyway, so, and we also sold them to Venezuela. Hmm. So there was a little bit of export business. Um, but the idea was that our primary role was to support the army. And we actually uh, fell under the Army Aviation Group. So it was called the 10th Tactical Aviation Group, which was under the umbrella of the Army, not under the umbrella of the Air Force. So the initial guys would wear berets and stuff instead of their wedge caps, and we would all laugh at them, but uh, they were very much Army-oriented, despite the fact they couldn't really do anything. So we would do um, close air support, and we used the whole span of weapons, um, you know, general-purpose bombs, 500-pound bombs, uh, rockets. We had a Canadian... Um, developed rocket system called the CRV-7, and we flew with pods of uh, 19 of those rockets. And I think back in the day, each pod was, I think it would cost about $75,000. So every time we fired one off, we'd say, there goes another Ferrari. (laughs) (laughs) It was great fun. You know, they were Mach 3 air rockets, and they they were quite accurate, too. Um, And we also dropped napalm. And that, that was a real surprise to me. So we had a we had a, um, a firearms demonstration at the local army base um, and they said, okay, you guys are going to go in and drop napalm and there's going to be a Chinese delegation uh, as spectators. And I thought, well, you know, we, we wouldn't really employ napalm in combat. We, it got to the point where we sort of said, okay, we're not going to drop this anymore because of the, you know, the effects of it and stuff. They said, no, no, but it looks great. You know, just go ahead and do it. So we went in and dropped napalm. And napalm is amazing because um, when you drop a general purpose bomb, you know, high explosive bomb, it's fused so that it will not drop at too low an altitude. Because if you drop it at 50 feet, it's going to blow you up as well as uh, as well as the bad guys. So typically it's about 100 feet is the minimum altitude. But napalm, because it didn't have that big of an explosive envelope, you could drop it at 30 feet. So we used to say, yeah, we'll just scrape it off on the top of the tank on the way by. So it was uh, it was quite spectacular to drop it, but it's nasty stuff. <laughs> so those those were the primary ones. The uh, you know general purpose bombs, uh, rockets, and if we had to, we drop napalm. And they uh, so sorry to go off on a tangent here a bit, but the interesting thing is when you look at um, we we carry luggage pods on the airplanes. You know if, if we're deploying or going cross country or whatever, and it's a you know it's a canister with a door in it, and you can you can put all your luggage in there because there's nowhere to store it in the airplane. Well, they are all ex uh, napalm canisters that they cut uh, a door into, so they it's still actually a napalm canister. Yeah. They must have had a lot of them because everyone carries them, don't they? Yeah, and the Americans. Oh carry yeah, yeah. Them and just, you know. yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what was the scenario, Bones? Then for, in the air to ground side of things, were, were you training for an, a scenario where the Soviets were coming over the polar ice cap, or, or were you training to deploy to West Germany to support um, a Cold War scenario there? Yeah, no. So our, our primary primary role for NATO support um, was in northern Norway. So that was our that was our sandbox where we were going to operate from. Um, 
we didn't anticipate a um, over the pole landing of, of Soviet troops. So the air defense guys, the Buddhists at the time, they were responsible for the air defense, you know, from the Soviet bombers, but we didn't anticipate a, a land invasion. Um, you know, and I mean, if they had have invaded the Arctic, you just leave them there for a month and they'd all be dead. So it's a very, very hostile environment up there, you know, unless you're fully, fully supported. So, mm -hmm. and, you know, the, the Soviets are used to working in the Arctic as well. So they knew very well that there was no hope of a land invasion here. So that wasn't, that wasn't our job with the F-5. It was to go to Northern Norway and to support the army wherever they were. Can, yeah. can I can I ask you what that then in in practical terms what that looks like then because I don't think I, I've interviewed a lot of people about the sort of close air support mission in temperate climates maybe in in desert climates so I don't think I've ever talked to anybody about it in sort of cold or Arctic type climates um, where there's a lot of snow on the ground there are lots of trees yeah. uh, where I guess a, an army force can hide what what did it, what did it mean in practical terms then um, you, were you flying along uh, trying to strike things that, or were you expecting to be striking things out in the open? Were you expecting to strike things that had been, you know, in revetments or were hiding in forests? Yeah. What, what, were, what were the practical um, expectations behind what that mission meant? Yeah, so so I'll just go a, a quick definition of close air support, um, and and it is the key issue is is close. So this is typically comes when an army unit is sort of pinned down and they don't have enough artillery support and they run the risk of being overrun by superior uh, enemy forces. So they'll call for close air support and they will steer us on to the targets that they feel are threatening most. So back in the day, that would be based on visual observation on their part. You know, now we have satellite and uh, you know, all kinds of other reconnaissance assets. But back then it was, it was purely visual. And they would, as we're running in on the target, we would have a map of the area. Uh, they wouldn't tell us the coordinates of the target. But they would give us a talk onto the target. So they would say, reference the large lake. And we would say, contact. And they'd say, okay, a southeast corner of the lake, peninsula land, contact. Okay, southern end of that peninsula, uh, two groups of trees, one on the east, one on the left, you know, uh, one the east, one on the west, and you'd say contact, or you'd say, uh, you know, no joy, and they try and describe something else. So they're doing this as you're running into the target at low level. And then when you feel that you've got the picture in your head, based on what you're looking at on the map, you go, okay, I think it's probably in this area. Then you would pop up and they would call visual on you to say that they are seeing you. And then they would have to try and steer you onto the, onto the target while they're talking and saying, okay, my last uh, thing was the two groups of trees, western group, southern end, concentration of forces. And you'd either say contact or no joy, and by that time it's too late, they get to block. So it was boom, 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 boom. You know, as soon as you got up in the into the pop, you had about 10 seconds to find the target, and when you called the target, they would have to give you clearance to fire because you're so close to the friendlies that if you're flying over the friendlies to get to the enemy position, there's a risk that your bombs are going to fall into the ground, at least. Mm. So it was it was very, very demanding flying. And that's why an airplane like the A-10 is good, because they can do it uh, much more slowly. They're much more maneuverable at low speed. And they also have, you know, they sit in a titanium cub, so they have reasonable protection from ground fire. But the F-5 and the OAC are really 
what were your expectations? And it's interesting to hear you say uh, two things. Firstly, you know, observing um, colleagues having accidents and dying um, and sort of realizing that the whole flying business, well, fast jet flying business in, in particular, was not a, a laughing matter. It was a serious matter. But the other was um, to, to hear you say that it wasn't a very effective airplane uh, for that mission. So what, what were your practical expectations if anything were to kick off? Were you... Were you expecting to be able to hit things on the ground while you were being shot at? Were you thinking this whole mission will, will be fairly futile? Um, did you, um, you know, were you thinking that far ahead in terms of of um, how effective you would be as a warfighter if it happened for real? Well, that's you know that that's a very um, I can only give you a very complex answer to that question. So we knew that a that we would not be very survivable, and b that. If we did survive, we wouldn't be very effective. But, you know, it goes back to World War II. I mean, lots of guys knew that by storming that machine gun nest, their chances of survival were not very good. But that's what they had to do. So, and and we did feel for the for the Army guys. I mean, if they're being pinned down by artillery fire and they got nowhere to go, then, you know, our chances are probably better than theirs are to attack the artillery that's uh, pounding them. So it's you just got to do what you got to do. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's that's not about hero, heroism or any of that kind of stuff. That's about, you know, if we really are planning to survive this war, um, I don't give a damn about what the country's ideology is. I want to protect my brothers in arms that are on the ground because, like I said, our, our chances in the air are better than their chances on the ground. They got nowhere to go, you know. Mm. We can always, you know, if we start getting shot at and we can see the tracer bar, we can always turn around and get out of there, but they're stuck. <laughs> yeah. So I think that was kind of the... The underlying uh, theme and it, we didn't talk about that at the time of course because you know it, it gets back to that self-defense mechanism you you can't admit that there's a good chance you're not gonna you know make it through this thing so you think okay well you know i'm the best pilot out there so i'm gonna survive <laughs> can, can you expand a little bit on the low-level nav piece um i had a guy called nick forster on the channel he he flew tornado gr4s and gr1s and he talked a lot about yeah. low-level nav um and flying the hawk out valley uh and mm-hmm. uh, chivner um in, in in terms of sort of how they did it i'd never heard anybody talk about tracking the route with their thumb that's a new thing for me <laughs> how, how did uh, it sounds uh, sounds obvious but how did that how did that work then um we we was yeah, your, so we yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so we used to, you know, so sometimes you'd have quite a large map, you know, because we covered a lot of ground at, at 420 knots. So you'd have quite a large map, you know, which wasn't necessarily straight out and straight back. It would go out in a big circle. So we would we would cut the map into strips, and then we would glue these strips together in a straight line. And then you would either, typically we wouldn't roll it up, we would fold it up into manageable size pieces. So it would be maybe you know, five or six inches wide. And um, you would have to track where you were over the ground based on your time and your and your heading uh, and based on ground features. So typically, in order to, to keep track of where you should be on the map, you would sort of pull the map down with your thumb. There. Ah. And that's how he found the piece that was glued to us. <laughs> ah, okay. And so, yeah. so that what sort of scale was the map? Sorry, I'm, I'm asking a really nerdy question. But what's because no, no, I'm thinking about lateral deviation. Right. I'm thinking if you get bounced and you go left or right yeah. of the line, how far oh, do you yeah. have to go before you're off the map? <laughs> yeah, it was a nightmare. Yeah, I mean, it was. All, it's all very good when you're flying on the line, on speed, on heading. But it's like you say, when you get bounced or you have to go around weather or whatever, then it starts to get real hard work. So um, we, because of the detail we needed, we actually flew with. Uh, 
one to 250,000 scale maps. You know, typically wow. uh, VFR charts are one to 500,000. Yeah. But we flew with the one to 250. And you, and you had good detail on, on the terrain features on those, but it made very big maps, of course. So, yeah. you know, it was, a, it was an exercise in uh, administrative management in the cockpit to, to try and not obscure your whole vision with this map. <laughs> When, when you when you first... there's there's a there's a famous there's a famous patch I don't know if you've seen it for the uh, you know for the SR seventy one guys and they said you've never really been lost you've been lost at Mach three <laughs> so the faster you go the farther off track you're going to be here when... and I, I I hate to admit it but you know like some people I knew got very very far off the track and had no idea where they ended up. <laughs> What would you do if that happened? Just pop up and call air traffic, or, or get a TACAN reading because you were higher? No, so that was you know the, the first tour I said I did in Bagotville, and and we would typically go from late October to probably late March without having a ceiling above uh, a thousand feet. Really? So it was just it was that part of the world where there was a lot of moisture in the air. And and it was always low level clouds, so we would roar around, you know, and, and we were cleared down to 100 feet then at 420 knots. So we would be roaring around at at 100 feet, and like you said, if we got bounced or or we had to deviate around a low cloud and weather and stuff, then you're off track, and now you're trying to get back on track to something that you can recognize. And if you don't recognize it, now you're in big trouble because you're not going to get an attack and or any that kind of stuff. Mm. So um, you could you could pop up above cloud and you know, talk back to base, but, you know, even then your radios are probably only going to work for about a hundred uh, nautical miles. So you really had to figure it out. You had to figure out how to get back to something that you recognized. And there were some big features out there, but, you know, uh, sometimes it would, that would get the pucker factor up for a while. Yeah. What, what about um, the terrain then? So you talked about how you sort of did your initial training in the flatlands and then you start, moved to more interesting terrain in, in sort of the central, um, do you say Quebec? Is it Quebec? Yes. Yeah, yeah. central Quebec. Yes, um, yeah. What, what um, and I'm, I'm, I'm interested to hear you say that those two instructors in the, in the 104 went and hit a lake, a frozen lake, and you said that's always the way it is. Uh, are there sort yeah. of visual deceptions associated with flying over snow in the same way as there are flying oh, yeah. over, over the sea? Um, what what were the sort of visual sure, and, yeah. and, and actual sort of yeah. physiological challenges behind flying low in, in those in the, over that terrain? Yeah, so the, uh, this this has happened a few times, and, and a good friend of mine was killed the same way too. Uh, it was he was flying over a frozen lake, and um, it can even be uh, you know quite good weather. Um, so people talk about whiteout. Um, whiteout is when you lose your horizon. But when you fly over a large frozen lake, you still have a horizon. But the problem is that the shoreline, you can um, confuse that with the horizon. So they, you know, you'll now set your flight vector on the shoreline instead of the horizon, which means you're descending. So that's one of the possibilities. The other thing is, like flying over the ocean, um, you lose your you lose your perspective, especially in high G turns. Mm. And, you, you know, you just can't, you can't visually gauge how high above the, the surface that you are. Uh, the rad out works up to about 70 degrees of bank. But if you're beyond 70 degrees, it's not, uh, it's not measuring your altitude either. So, and, you know, it's like I said, when, when you're at a hundred feet and you're going those speeds, 
uh, if you're not watching what you're doing, then two seconds later you can get to the you know into the lake. Mm -hmm. Is is uh, I noticed your aircraft in the picture that that we popped up um, a green, um, and obviously over a sort of foresty terrain where it's not snowy. I guess that makes them difficult to pick up. But but was it snowy right. a lot, and, and and therefore was it easier to maintain a sort of um, a visual formation because of the color? I, I'm curious to know whether or not green's a good color. With the RAF, for example, when they went to Norway, um, when they had green painted airplanes, they would paint them green and white. They would put this sort of temporary whitewash type thing on them, wouldn't they? And I, I, I'm yeah, sort of curious to know whether or not you did the same and, and the effectiveness of the camouflage scheme that you had on those F5s. Yeah, that, and, and I'll tell you a great story in a couple of minutes here, but. Um, so there's no perfect camouflage, and, and uh, the general consensus, as you can see now, in all air forces, is a neutral gray. So you're absolutely right. If you're flying over a frozen lake or frozen terrain in a dark green airplane, then you're going to stick out like dogs bollocks. Um, on the flip side, if you're flying a light airplane over the dark forest, you're going to stick out as well. So um, when I was flying the F5, we also used to do a red flag every year, which is great fun. You know, you're you're uh, it's down in Las Vegas. So we would stay in the city in a hotel in the city. And then we'd fly these missions, you know, out of Nellis Air Force Base. And uh, I think it was maybe the second time I've been there. Um, we deployed down there from Bagotville and we spent the night in um, Williams Air Force Base in, in uh, Phoenix in Arizona. And then we flew from Phoenix up to Las Vegas, which is a fairly short hop. So the guy that was leading our formation at four, he, he'd been on exchange down in, um, in the States at Williams. So he knew the terrain and he goes, okay, he says, we're going to fly up the Grand Canyon. Um, but he says, you cannot go below the lip of the canyon. He said, it's huge. It's not a safety issue, but it's highly monitored and they've had a couple of midair collisions in there. So do not do that, whatever you do. So we go, okay, yeah, yeah that makes sense. So we, um, we did that, a spectacular trip. We landed in uh, Nellis. And then um, a squadron of French Jaguars came in after us. And when they landed, there was a big greeting committee. So the base commander was there and a bunch of military policemen and stuff. And thought, oh, well, you know, I guess we don't rate that in terms of international uh, welcome, but yeah, good for the French, you know. So we find out later that the French had flown into the canyon with their whole squadron of Jaguars, pissed off everybody, and they were getting a bollocking from the base commander when they landed. <laughs> So getting back to the camouflage, they decided, you know, because they, they'd operated in North Africa and all that kind of stuff. So they thought they were going to paint their dark green jags with this, you know, hodgepodge uh, um, desert colored camouflage. So the ground crew were out there and they did quite a nice job, actually. Like, they, you know, we would typically just slop the paint on if we were going to do that. But they, they actually, you know, followed the contours of the green and painted over this desert camouflage. But it came out yellow. <laughs> <laughs> and it was you know back then this was in the early 80s so most of the um air-to-air -air shots were were visual uh heater shots we call you know the infrared missiles and then you would call that out on the uh on the common frequency and said you know uh f4 over such and such uh you know fox 2 kill type of thing but whenever it was the french jag it would always be Fox two kill on the yellow jag <laughs> over this mountain, <laughs> and you'd hear that over and over and over on the frequency, and it's like, oh man, you poor guys. <laughs> so sometimes they screw it up, yeah. And um, we we would do they would take us out for a day if you wanted to to do a desert survival, 
out in uh, in Nellis. And back then we had uh, tan flying suits or we had dark, dark green flying suits. Those are the two uh, choices that we had. Um, so a buddy of mine goes up to do this one day uh, survival exercise and he took his tan flying suit thinking that would be the best um, camouflage for him. So he he finished at the end of the day and they had a debriefing and the, the staff that was doing the exercise said, uh, hey, Canadian, and he said, did you realize how visible you were out there? And he goes, yeah, he says, I couldn't really find a lot of sand to hide in. So, of course, all the rock out there is dark, dark brown or even black rock. And that's where you're going to be hiding. You're not going to be out in the middle of the of the sand dunes, right? So he goes, yeah, he said, you stuck out like a sore thumb. Wow. So camouflage is is difficult. It's a hard one to hard one to call. Speaking of of survival, um, yeah. winter survival, um, I guess particularly at the sort of latitude you're talking about flying, um, were there uh, was there a serious threat of bears? It's one of the curiosities I have. If you were you did you always fly with a pistol, for example? So you you know if if you yeah. come down, you could shoot the bear. Yeah, I, I wish you had asked me that before. I would have, I would have sent you off a, a cartoon that we came up with. But so we really started um, getting serious about flying in the Arctic with fighters um, with the F eighteen. Uh, and I guess I'm trying to think of the years. I guess that was in the mid eighties. The Russians were getting much more aggressive with their um, bear patrols over the Arctic and and you know probing our airspace. So they said, okay, we got to get serious about this. So they they built a, a couple of um, uh, temporary hangars at civilian air, airfields in the in the Canadian Arctic, and we would deploy up there and work out of those fields. And they said, okay, you know, we got to get serious about Arctic survival here in case something happens. You got to jump out. So the first thing was, you know, to get us a pistol, and they gave us this 1950s uh, Browning nine millimeter cold pistol, and we, you know, we we, we always had to. Uh, stay qualified on that, you know, whether it was going to the um, to Europe or to the Arctic. Um, but it wasn't very good. You know, these things were well worn out. And at a nine millimeter, um, that's not going to penetrate a polar bear. So unless you hit him in the eye or something like that, you know, if you shoot into his chest, it's not even going to penetrate the fur, I don't think. Yeah. So we knew that that wasn't very good. And um, so uh, I'll, I'll try and get you the... Um, <clears throat> the cartoon and maybe you can patch it in later but it's a hilarious cartoon and there's a there's a f-18 pilot standing there with a smoking pistol and there's a, a polar bear looking at this hole in his chest and the pistol is about you know it's like a, a handheld cannon and it's the um 50 caliber bear bopper deluxe with depleted uranium rounds <laughs> <laughs> Because we were all sitting there trying to go, well, what are we going to do? You know, this Browning nine millimeter is not going to do anything. So, what kind of pistol are we going to get? And of course, all the gun guys going, oh yeah, you know, you got to get a, you know, a forty-four Magnum and all this kind of stuff. You know, so he said, okay, now I'm going to, I'm going to end the argument here. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bear bopper deluxe. You know? But the the survival aspect that was tricky too, because um, you know, even if they could get the assets out. Um, to find you in the first place, you know, so assuming that the weather is good enough, because it was going to be, it was going to be a visual search for you. And um, then they have to do something. So um, typically the search and rescue assets would carry uh, para, para jumpers and they would parachute down and 
you know, give you first aid and, and uh, fire, shelter, and food type of thing if they could find you. Uh, but then you had to get extracted. And because of the distances involved, it would take quite a while to get a helicopter there to pull you out. So we knew it was going to be a huge challenge if you had to jump out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did do uh, Arctic survival training, which was done in the high Arctic. You know, it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't just cold weather survival. This is Arctic survival where you learn to build igloos and, and that sort of thing. Um, but even then, you had to have you had had to have some source of heat, um, and if you were injured, it was going to be very difficult. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it, it was a, and and it's like flying out over the middle of the ocean. You know, as soon as you get out there, everything gets very quiet, and then you start hearing these funny little noises in your airplane, and you go, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, if I can develop that story a bit more, is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. So um, when we deployed to um, Norway, we would fly with the Canadian tanker. It was a, you know, a 707, civilian 707 that had been adapted for air refueling. And they would take four F5s across at a time and then they would fly back and then bring the next four over. So on one of the deployments, um, a good friend of mine, a guy named P.I. Weatherall, uh, he was just pulling off the hose on the tanker and one of his engines uh, compressor stalled. And of course that caused yaw and then the other one compressor stalled and get back to the ridiculous F5. There was no auxiliary power. There's no rammer turbine. When you lost the engines, you lost all your AC power and there were no DC powered uh, systems other than a tiny little compass, a tiny little uh, AI, and you had um, guard frequency on the radio. So wow. he's going down through cloud with no engines, no instruments. He can't even talk to anybody. And he's going, if I eject, I'm definitely dead because he's out over the North Atlantic Ocean. So I think he got down to about 10,000 feet and he got, he managed to get both engines uh, uh, fired up again. And he's climbing out and his, his attitude indicator is tumbling and he's going up through cloud and he finally gets on top of cloud. He's 70 nautical miles behind the tanker at this point. Wow. So they finally doubled back and found them. And luckily the tanker had its own TACAN station built on the on the uh, in, into the airplane so it could actually find you you know based on the tack end so they were able to get paired back up and uh, he got his fuel and, and made it to iceland but uh, yeah it's just crazy crazy stuff weird yeah, that doesn't sound like fun no because <laughs> yeah. i mean if you you know if you bail out or you're you're way too far from helicopter assets unless you're close to the you know the greenland or the iceland uh shoreline you know where they have helicopters and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff but you're you're basically waiting for a ship to find you yeah do, do you um I, I guess you don't really sort of dwell on any of this sort of stuff you you know the the dangers that are um ever present and that you uh, potentially have to face on every um sort of you fly but what sort of coping mechanism or what sort of uh, defensive mechanism do you develop then to make sure you don't end up dwelling on those things that they don't constantly come back to your mind is is there some yeah, discipline well, behind it or is it it's just down to your personality oh, yeah. no it's, it's discipline so we're we're taught that we're all the best pilot in the air force and we could never make a mistake and cause an accident <laughs> so yeah that's facetious obviously but um the 
it was a it was a slowly developed thing i think you know and, and you get these realizations like when i was going through the f5 training i think we had about five crashes while i was going through the training like fatal accidents really? and and that's when you start thinking well what is it you know like could they have all been that bad a pilot or you know none of them were mechanical failures so you you just have to rationalize it basically yeah and and i I, I think you get the gist of what I'm I'm saying, but I'll I'll tell you another interesting story. So, uh, just after I got onto the F-18, uh, my best friend in the Air Force, he was uh, a bit younger than I I was, uh, so he was he wasn't as experienced as I. So, when we were both on the F-5 together, and then we both ended up on the same F-18 course in Cold Lake, but I ended up staying there as an instructor on the on the OCU on the training squadron. And he went to the uh, operational squadron, which is ne next door to us in Cold Lake. And um, he was deployed out to Comox, which is on our west coast. And they have a, a QRA facility for air defense out of Comox. And there was a fishing boat that was in distress off the west coast of uh, British Columbia in Canada. And they couldn't deploy the uh, search and rescue assets because the surface winds were 70 knots. Like surface winds, 70 knots. So there was a bright spark in the air defense headquarters that said well the f-18s can fly in anything let's launch them off maybe they can find this guy so my best friend uh, a guy named leif erickson uh, he had been a fisherman on the west coast a commercial fisherman on the west coast prior to joining the air force uh, so he was probably over motivated shall we say to find this boat and uh, they flew over the last known position of the boat and they couldn't you know, it was noisy as hell with the, the winds and the storm and everything that's going through. And he wasn't sure if he was hearing this boat or not. So he thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll descend down below cloud and maybe I can see some lights. So he went off the, off the coast out over the Pacific and descended down below cloud. But his moving map had drifted and it was a known defect in his particular airplane. Uh, but his moving map had drifted and he was not out over the ocean. He flew into a cliff at, uh, you know, at 300 knots. Wow. So, you know, there's lots of lessons to be learned there. First of all, the defect, you know, this was an acceptable defect to fly with, but it had enormous ramifications in this, uh, in this particular scenario. Um, would he have done that if he had not been a fisherman prior? No, probably not here. You know? That was, you know, but just by being out there was um, heroic enough on his part. He didn't need to get down the leaf. And in typical fashion, the fisherman found a cove and he was fine. You know, the, the rescue asset ends up dead. Here. And this this happens all the time, you know, especially especially in Canada because the environment is so unforgiving. So, mm. yeah, wow. there, it's a it's a sad story, but there's lessons to be learned from it too. Yeah. Uh, Bones, tell me, tell me a little bit about um, the F five and the air to air role. There, you you did mention. Obviously, we 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 flashed the picture up. You talked about going out and uh, flying against those F fours and and stripping everything off the jet, um, and it being a, a fun experience. Um, so I've got two questions really around this. The first is that whenever I think of sort of fighter pilots, you kind of think of of uh, the sport of kings, air to air. You know, did did you feel in your in your mind that you hadn't made it until you had sort of conquered that particular skill set? Um, and, and the second yeah. is, did you conquer conquer that skill set as an F five driver, or did you have to wait till you were flying the Hornet before you really felt that that you were that guy? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, and and you know, flying air to air in the F five was was. Uh, 
you know, more fun than serious. So we knew that, you know, the only way that you could really maneuver that airplane was when it was completely clean. So there's, you couldn't do anything without the fuel tanks. Now you could, you could jettison the fuel tanks, which we would do, you know, if you, if you got into a turning fight with the adversary, the first thing you do is jettison the fuel tanks. Um, but realistically, you know, we're, we weren't going to do anything, but it was actually, um, when I was flying the F5, uh with the navy and i got a backseat ride in, in the f4 one time and you know so i saw it from his perspective what he was doing and it was quite surprising how he maneuvered the airplane i didn't realize what they were doing at the time so i was asking him about it and i said well you know why why are you doing that because typically when you I'll see if i can get both hands on you typically when you come to emerge you know you you're turning towards the adversary as quickly as you can trying to get on his tail well when we came into emerge he would dive the nose down with about 35 degrees of dive and that's you know that means your velocity vectors off the adversary airplane so i go well, why are you doing that you know you're not you're not going to turn quick enough and he goes well yeah but it's about energy management too so the only way to maintain your energy in these airplanes because it's you know they didn't have one-to-one thrust ratio is to take it down and you had to do that without the other guy figuring it out because as soon as he went down now you're back in plane again so yeah. if you're fighting the same airplane that's you know you're, you're just going around in circles so that's that's how I learned to do that, and that was a very effective, uh, a very effective maneuver. Only if the other guy didn't realize what you were doing and match you, and match you doing it. Um, but when I got onto the F eighteen, um, we had, well, we had uh, a U.S. Navy exchange officer on the squadron, so he'd flown the F eighteen uh, with the Navy, and then we had a couple of Canadian guys who were very very sharp pilots uh, one of them off the f5 and the other had come from the voodoo and they had they had done an exchange tour with the navy and the marine corps respectively and um, and then come back up to our canadian training squadron as f18 training pilots and i would fly in the back seat with them and it's like holy cats i didn't think you could do that in an airplane <laughs> but the f18 it was just such a fabulous airplane like you know, you could you could do almost anything up to a cobra maneuver and a tail slide in it, but it was so the, the flying characteristics were so incredible. So one of the things that I learned, and and it took a, a long time to figure it out. You know, we would, and especially if you're flying with another F eighteen, you get into these uh, low speed vertical scissors where you're just you know you're going straight up and you're and you're trying to get the other guy to chicken out or fall out of airspeed and come down. Well, you're pretty well matched, and both guys know how to do it. You know, so you end up you're both sort of following and then you end up in this going down and doing the same thing on the way down. So you had to figure out some way to change the fight. And um, we would do a thing where you would actually, you know, you, you got the nose all jacked up, probably 70 degrees in the air. You would actually kick um, the rudder and put into rudder aileron, which sounds like a sure way of getting into a spin, but it would actually pivot the nose around extremely rapidly you'd usually get the yaw tone, you know, it's like beep, 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 saying your uh, impending spin. And then as soon as you release the pressure on the uh, on the stick and the rudder, it would keep on flying. And it was absolutely spectacular to see it, you know, to see another airplane do that. It looked like it was swapping ends. Yeah. Mm. So that was, you know, if you're both going up and the other guy starts falling off and you're a little bit higher than him, you just kick the, the rudder and the, and the uh, aileron and you're going to be right on his tail in, in a matter of seconds. Yeah. So that was one of the that was one of the things that I learned on the F eighteen. Tell us um, a little bit about about when you got to the Hornet or or, or how you concluded your time on the F five because I think you, did you say you did two tours on the F five? 
No, I did a long tour. So it was almost mm-hmm. five years on the F5. Okay. And it, you know, I was, uh, so I was, I was trying to get on uh, the F18 while I was on the F5 because I'd, I'd had a, a back seat ride on the F18 fairly soon after we got it. So I realized there was a huge, you know, capability uh, gap between the two airplanes. So I really wanted to fly the Hornet. Um, so I was pushing to get a Hornet tour uh, from the F5. But an operational squadron. They're not on the training squadron. Um, and then a good friend of mine <clears throat> from our squadron, he he ended up on the um um on the tornado uh, GR1, the bomber. Um uh but he went from an F5 operational pilot to a tornado instructor pilot. So he was on the OCU uh, for the tornado. And I kept in touch with him and, and, you know, he said, Hey, I'm having a great time, but he said, it's really, really challenging here, you know, learning the new airplane and being an instructor on it without mm-hmm. ever having done anything like that, you know, the train following radar and all that sort of thing. So I knew that that would have, <clears throat> that would have been a huge challenge. Um, and then when I got onto the Hornet, um, a good friend of mine ended up on the exchange tour on the tornado F3. Um, and I knew him very well. So we, we kept in, in, in touch and he said yeah he said you know like the the tornado's got some significant limitations but he said it's actually a great airplane and he ended up in the first gulf war uh on the f3 uh, they were down in uh, saudi i think they were based out in saudi yeah. uh, so you know he was telling me about that and he said yeah he says you know sure i'd like to have an f-18 but he said it's got you know it's got very good uh, rwr to have better rwr than the f-18 had um and it's you know it's a reasonably survivable aircraft and all that kind of stuff so so he wasn't you know he wasn't averse to uh going into combat with the uh, with the tornado mm. so that gave me a better feeling and then i ended up being selected for the uh, for the tornado f3 as well T- tell us then about that transition to the hornet from the f5 you've already described the fact that there are multiple systems you it's, it's a you know proper platform for in- employing weapons from rather than you know the, the f5 being at the opposite end of that yeah. spectrum um yeah did you again it's I'm, I'm trying not to ask too many leading questions but did you end up feeling no, like you were, you were back at the bottom of the heap again because now you're having to work out work out how to run a radar how to employ radar guided missiles um yeah you know you, you've got all of these things what was the experience like yeah so that's a great question because um first of all the the airplane um, you know, the F-18 was a was a long developmental process, you know, so the, it started out as the Northrop YF-17. And then when they decided they wanted to, the Navy wanted to buy it, they had to make it uh, carrier capable. So that's when um, McDonnell Douglas got involved. Um, and then when they designed the airplane, they designed it to replace the F-4, um, but with a single crew. So it was going to be single pilot, multi-role. Um, so they, you know, and I read a great book many years ago about the development of the F-18 and every single thing that they did was just so well thought out. Like even, even how they integrated the Vulcan cannon in the nose, you know, how they worked the radar around it. Um, the big thing about the F-18 was the HOTAS, you know, the hands-on throttle and stick. So when you're, when you're pulling anything above 5G, I think. It's virtually impossible to raise your hand and push a button on the instrument panel. You know, you just don't have enough strength to do that. So they knew that they had to put this on the throttle and stick. So there's a, you've probably seen the F-18 um, 
well, you, you had a ride in there. Yeah, so you know, there's there's like a mouse on the throttle, and then um, a cursor on the stick, and then all of the different weapons uh, buttons and, and selection buttons. So you can you can go into battle without you know pressing anything on the instrument on the instrument display. So it really is optimized for single pilot operations here. Um, so getting back to your question, you know, when I'm coming from the F5 with virtually nothing and going out to the F18, the big advantage was that. You know, I was quite comfortable flying at low altitude, so then I could divert more of my attention to running the systems and flying formation because you also have to keep track of your other airplanes with you too, right? So it's you know that 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 in itself is is very demanding. But because I'd had so much flying, you know, I had I had over a thousand hours on the F five, mostly at low level. So then you know you you build up a certain comfort uh, flying at lower level, and you know how much time you can divert to other tasks it really is you know a time management thing you know how long can i afford to look down at the map and not look up at the mountain that i'm approaching so yeah so but there's no mountains in cold lake so that that wasn't a big issue <laughs> but you know i you know what i'm getting at it's 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 a time management thing so the basic flying skills made operating the airplane uh, significantly easier and the airplane was easy to operate but it was very very complex and then that's when you get into um experience levels of pilots so you know when you when you graduate from the f-18 training squadron uh, you're pretty proficient at operating the airplane in the tactical roles but then you need to graduate to be a two-plane lead a four-plane lead, and then what we call um, a mission commander, which is mass attack, you know, multiple multiple formations. Hmm. And, you know, there's no way to do that in the simulator. These are things that you have to go and fly, you know, and, and do on a day-by-day a -day basis to get that level of experience up so that you can run your airplane, not hit the ground, see what your wingmen are doing, find the enemy, drop bombs, or shoot them with a missile, you yeah. know. And that's that's what you have to do. And and there's you know there's just no substitute for experience. I mean, we had absolutely brilliant guides that at the end of their first operational tour would be fully qualified. You know, they they could do anything, but they were the um, they were sort of the minority of the system. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the talent pool then before we sort of talk more about the Hornet itself um you'd you've said right at the beginning you were the only guy on your on your course to get fast jets and so competition was yeah. stiff um did you I mean small air forces tend to have a sometimes a bit of a, an inferiority complex don't they i mean you, you'll hear <laughs> some some air forces saying they might have they might not have the best equipment but they've got the best pilots or they can do low level better than anybody else what what was the yeah. level of competition like within the squadron what were the standards like and and did you compare yourself well, presumably you did. How did you compare yourselves to the RAF, the US Air Force, the US Navy? Obviously, you guys are going out doing these exchange tours. You're coming back. You know what other air forces are capable of. Where did you rank yourselves? And 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 um, you know. So, what was the standard within the squadron? Yeah. So I'll start with the squadron. Um, so, you know, every every time you go flying. Uh, there's a significant amount of preparation before you go flying, but then there's also a significant debriefing. And, you know, in the in the good old days or the bad old days, the first guy to the chalkboard 
um, would win the fight. You know, so he said, no, this is what happened. He well, I, I thought you turned left. No, 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 I turned right. And that's how I got on your tail. And it's like, oh, okay, this didn't seem right. You know? <laughs> so there was a, a certain amount of uh, BSing going on there. But once we got into the electronic uh, range instrumentation where you could actually see what every airplane was doing and we had, you know, HUD tapes so you could see what's going on inside the cockpit, basically, or, you know, the, the, the bravado fell very quickly to actual competence and that uh, you could figure out who the good guys were in there and the, the not so uh, strong pilots on the squadron. And that made it, you know, that's a, it's a very interesting question because it, it made a huge difference in the typical fighter pilot. So we all think of fighter pilots, you know, as type A personalities that go around, you know, swaggering around and bragging about how great they are. And when you get onto the squadron, it is completely different. I mean, these are the most humble individuals that you will ever see because even the best pilots make mistakes and they can't cover them up, you know? Hmm. So yeah, you, you don't want to be uh, blowing your own horn too hard because they'll come down on you hard. And <laughs> we had a, when I was on the training squad and um, we had this guy who was he was absolutely brilliant. He was a mathematician. Uh, he had the brain the size of a planet, uh, but he was also uh, tough as nails and, and huge ego. And he was quite a good pilot. So we're going out doing a night refueling training one day and we're getting prepared to go. And I was on the next launch after him, but it was only about a five minute uh, spacing. So we we're getting prepared at the same time. And he had come from the F-104. They didn't, they didn't do air refueling in the F-104. So he'd come on to the F-18 as, a, as an instructor, learn to do air refueling on the F-18. And now we're just going up to do some, you know, continuity training. And I'd come from the F-5 and we did air refueling all the time. So we're doing, we're going on this uh, night uh, air refueling training trip. And he's going, you know, the, the guys are all razzing each other in the, in the shoe room. He's going, ah, yeah. He says, I never tip off. And tip off is when you hit the basket, but you don't connect, you know, so the basket goes like that. And the basket usually does this big gyration if you don't, if you don't uh, connect with it. So he goes, yeah, he says, I never tip off. And they're going, okay. <laughs> so he gets up there, he hits the basket and he hit it bad. So when, when it let go, it went all the way around the nose of his airplane. It knocked off the AOA probe on the right-hand side. The AOA probe goes right down the intake, right into the fan. And the guy, I was on the next launch. I didn't see it, but the guys that came back, they were laughing. They said there was 40 feet of blue flame coming out of the front of the airplane and 60 feet out of the back. <laughs> so he had, to, he had to eat a huge piece of humble pie when he came back after that one. So, hey, Cash, how did it go? Like that? You know, you never tip off. <laughs> so there's no hiding. You know, you, you, you couldn't you BS uh, those kind of things. Here. So then getting back to international things, and that's a great question that I often get asked. And, you know, there's, there's this um, uh, misperception that uh, exercises like red flag uh, or maple flag and even courses like top gun are competitive and you know for the for the fighter weapons course there is a there is a, a bit of competitiveness in there because if you're the top graduate you get a you know you get a you get an honor um but for the exercises uh you know red flag mid flag thunder whatever you call it um you know, the 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 kills the air to air kills are registered 
uh, the bomb hits versus misses are all registered. It's all electronically uh, monitored, um, but they don't come up with a tally at the end because quite often you get you know four or five countries participating, but they don't come up and say, yeah, Canada was the best. You know, U.S. was number two, uh, U.K. was number three. Now there's nothing like that. But you know, as you go through it, you can kind of see which countries are doing better than others just just based on an informal um, assessment from the debrief. So then you get back to pilots, you know, and, and you say, well, you know, you're you're from such a small air force, then surely you have uh, a much bigger talent pool to draw from. Therefore, the pilot, the fighter pilots who are, you know, like I'm not making this up, but they are at the top heat, you know, in terms of military pilots, right? So, you know, we would expect that the Canadian pilots would be head and shoulders above everyone else. And that's not true at all, mm. you know. So um, it's such a complex environment and there's so many things involved. Uh, there are a few uh, superstars that stand out in every Air Force that I've worked with. But to say that one Air Force is head and shoulders above the other, it, it's a hard thing to do. I mean, the probably the USAF has um, the best training program and the best operational program, um, you know, operational continuity uh, program. So they tend to be very, very good pilots, but they have career issues too. So you know, they, they're on an up and out uh, program. Mm -hmm. So after you've done uh, one tour, you're looking at getting promoted to major. And as soon as you're a major, you're now in the career stream. So now you have to work on all your staff work too. And the RAF has um, professional air crew status. So I don't know if they still have that. Yeah. And that's really what you need. You know, you need to say, do you really want to be an air commodore or do you want to be a fighter pilot? You know, and, and that's the, the best system. Canada has sort of a hybrid system. So it's not... It's not um, recognized. There's no formal professional air crew. But if you're not pointing towards being a career officer, then they will keep you around for quite a while. And it's probably based on supply and demand. You know, they just don't have enough experience to mm -hmm. pilots around. But um, that's, that's a great segue. So when I left the Air Force, I left the Air Force in, in uh, July of 2000. And um, I joined Air Canada. And Air Canada had um, a probation uh, period when you're, you know, when you first come to the airline. Um, and at the end of that period, you have to write this three-hour exam. So I had managed to get very good intel on what the questions were on the exam. I didn't, I'm not saying I'm cheating. I just said I had very good intel. So I sat down and I'm going, at, tick, tick. so after an hour of this three-hour program, I'd finished. So I thought, oh, yeah, I can't really leave right now. I was the only guy in the exam room, but I thought I can't leave right now because it, it would be kind of obvious, you know. So I'm thinking, okay, well, I'm going to go and get a coffee at least, and I'll just sit back here. And I didn't have a cell phone or anything, so I'm just looking out the window. So I walked down the hallway in the in the ground school business uh, building, and all of the uh, staff were gathered into one of the debriefing rooms watching the TV. And I thought, what the heck is going on? So I look up and I see this airliner fly into a uh, um building in new york i said what's going on and they said well this you know this airliner just crashed into the world trade center and while i was sitting there the second one hit the setting, second building and i went okay it's not an accident now my life just changed right so that um you know going from the uh from the air force to the airline ended up being a you know a, a significantly bad idea so i knew that they you know, the airline was going to be drastically affected for probably several years. 
And eventually in 2003, they, you know, Air Canada declared bankruptcy for various reasons, not just for 9-11. Uh, so I was going to be laid off and I contacted the Air Force and I said, hey, you know, can are you interested in taking me back in? They said, oh, yeah, absolutely. So I said, okay, great. You know, I'd, I'd really like to go to Bagotville on an operational Hornet squadron. I know they're really short on experienced pilots. I'm willing to do that. And he said, oh, no, no, we, we can't offer you that old chap. <laughs> no, you, you can go out and be a, an instructor at a Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, you know, for a couple of years. And I said, no. <laughs> So that's how pig-headed the Air Force was. They were short on pilots. They were stretched to the limit because they were on 24-hour alert duties because of the threat of more airliners coming over. And they were too pig-headed to take me back in as an experienced F-18 pilot. You know, it was just, I thought, oh, you idiots, you know. I don't know who's making these decisions, but they're... Anyway, but I, you know, I I eventually, uh, after nine years at Air Canada, things settled down. And I eventually uh, ended up getting hired as a pilot on the Alpha Jet. And then we got to fly, you know, uh, in support of the Army and Navy and uh, in the Air Force as well. And that was our primary job, really, was to, you know, was to do air combat uh, training support with the F-18s. Mm. And the Alpha Jet was, you know, it had nowhere near the, the performance or the technical abilities of the F-18, but all of the pilots were highly, highly experienced F-18 pilots. So as soon as we saw... The F-18 pilot made a mistake. We knew what the mistake was, and we knew how to capitalize on it. So we could we could beat them in certain situations, in, in dogfights. I'm talking not just in you know in the big complex uh, air battles. How, how would you do that? So, so you, we've we've jumped ahead a little bit, but but let's talk about yeah, that. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you, how would you? So the Alpha Jet uh, would be familiar to most people listening to the to this, but that's a simple two-engined little fast jet trainer used by the Germans and the yeah. French. Um, Very much like the Hawk. Like the Hawk. Yeah. So so how would you beat an, a Hornet yeah. in an Alpha Jet? Well, it's like I said, you would, you would see a mistake that they made. So if they got too slow, uh, you know, if they got too greedy and they, and they tried to square the turn and they didn't get on your tail, then we would actually loosen off and get some airspeed back. And, and then we could actually outturn them because they were below their corner speed. So I don't know if you're familiar yeah. with the term corner speed. Yeah. So that's the, the speed where you can pull the highest uh, G. And typically that's the best place to fight the airplane. Yeah. So when we saw them get down to like 200 knots, if they didn't dump the nose and get airspeed back right away, then we knew, okay, well, I've got, you know, yeah, and it was that simple. So, so it would of, take a while to get back on the tail, but there was no, no escaping at that point. Let, let me, let me just ask you about that then. So, so one of the things that people say about the Hornet, because it doesn't have an AOA limiter is that it can threaten with nose pointing. It's got great nose authority. So you can effectively yeah. sort of sit it on its tail and still, and still sort of move the nose around and point at people. Um, Correct. If, yeah. So, if you're in the, your, your little Alpha Jet and he's only doing 200 knots, isn't that what he's going to do? Then he's just going to use the angle of attack capability that he has to just keep the yeah. nose pointed at you and just maybe get a tracking gunshot or a snapshot, something like that. <laughs> is that not how it works? No, no, no. So, so this this starts out when you're sort of across the circle, you know, and our noses are nowhere near each other, and then he does a big bite. But it's not enough, okay? So he hasn't got his nose on you. He can't put a weapon on you. And then as you come around, you realize that he's not accelerating again. So then we just manage our airspeed and, and eventually we'll end up on their tail. Yeah. This this idea that you can just, you know, point your nose everywhere. The F-22 can virtually do that, you know? And now, of course, with, with the new missiles with the huge off-foresight capability, they can basically just look at you and launch a missile if you're within range. You know, it doesn't matter where your nose is. 
but back you know back in this day you know you had to be within parameters to shoot the missile and it didn't have to be on the guy's tail you know you you, you even get your nose on him uh, for a head-on uh, aim nine shot but the trick is not to get into the you know as the uh, um, adversary to to stay out of a position where he can get your his nose on you within range to fire a shot yeah so, so it's not this um, sort of silver bullet, um, this the the nose pointing ability. It's yep. something that still has to be selectively used and carefully managed, and uh, you're not, yes, not just going to go to that every time because it's a correct. Okay. Yeah. So here's another here's another funny one. I don't know if you've ever heard um, the expression with respect to the Harrier about vipping. Mm. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, it's vectoring in forward flight. Yeah. So so there's this great myth that the you know if you came into a fight and you got you know you got fairly slow and and somebody was coming on the harrier's tail that he would just pull the nozzles and and viff away from you and then drop back into your six a bit like you know the first top gun yeah. <laughs> well we used to fight the harrier even in the tornado you know which is not a particularly maneuver airplane and you go oh there he goes he's viffing <laughs> <laughs> sorry old chap you know and you just go around the circle and then you gun him <laughs> And these are the sea harriers, you know, they, they were the guys that, you know, that, that was their primary role was air to air. It wasn't the, you know, the, the bomber harrier guys. So it's like, oh no, that's not going to work old chap. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Such wonderful irreverence. Um, t- tell us about then, tell us about uh, DACT against other types then. I mean, I just had on the channel um, a good friend of mine who flew the Eagle and he talked a lot about, um, you know, how he'd fight the Tomcat or how, how he'd fight the F-16. And he, he talked about the F-16, you know, being able to develop 30 degrees of nose, um, of of angles on him at each merge. And he said, you know, at the second merge, if he wasn't doing that well, he would he would bug out, he would leave the fight. What, what, how would you fight an F-16? How would you fight an F-15 in, in the Hornet? What, what, what sort of approach would you take to both of those types? Yeah, so what, what the Eagle guy was getting at was the thrust-to-weight ratio. So the maneuverability of the two airplanes was was quite close, um, as was the F-18. The F-18 um, was probably the lowest in terms of thrust-to-weight ratio and the highest in terms of maneuverability out of the three. Um, but it gets back to the Alpha Jet fighting, fighting the F-18. So you had to really use that high angle attack capability very, very selectively. And the other thing we used to talk about is, you know, you could be out doing this 1v1 dogfight you know, with the MiG-29 or whatever, and you're beating them, and you're just about getting into position to shoot them, well, you know, what about all his buddies out there? You know, when you're there in full afterburner at 70 knots, that's called being a flare, you know, so anybody could launch a heat-seeking missile at you, and you're, you got no maneuverability at that point. So, so we, you know, we love to talk about this, you know, high AOE maneuvering and all that kind of stuff, but that's, it's really used as a last ditch maneuver where you, you have no choice. You know, this is, this is a knife fight in the phone booth and it's either you or him, but it's the last thing you want to do if you have any other options. So getting back to your, your question, um, the F-14 is out of there. It's, it's a bit like the tornado. So it was designed as a, a fleet air defense interceptor, uh, not a maneuver fighter. Now, the later generations with the big GE engines, they were much, much better, um, but it's out of the picture. So the F-16, um, because it had this enormous thrust-to-weight ratio, it was the King Kong, really, of, of uh, air combat. Um, but the F-18 was close enough that we could force him into a high uh, angle of attack 
regime, and they were limited to 25 degrees angle of attack. So it was it was hilarious, you know. If you, if you take it up into a vertical scissors, and and they were you know they were accelerating like crazy because they had better thrust to weight. You go, okay, I'm just waiting, I'm just waiting, and then all of a sudden you'd see the nose falling off of the F-16, and you'd come up on the radio and they'd say, "I see you're bowing to the superior aircraft," and you just pivot the nose on and gun them. <laughs> and they knew that, and they go, "Oh no, he's gonna do it again." <laughs> But if you were in a in a classic two circle fight, a high energy fight, they would just march around the circle on you and shoot you with a heater. Yeah. And the same thing with the F fifteen too. So, so you... the F fifteen didn't have the AOA limit, but it's it they didn't like to fly it at high AOA, and it, it wasn't you know it wasn't as maneuverable as the F eighteen. So we could we could beat them too in a in a slow in a slow fight. But really, the, the advantage of the F eighteen was the high AOA uh, capability. Yeah. Can can you describe a little um, what it's like to fly the F eighteen then in those regimes? You, you already talked about how you could go from three hundred knots to to one hundred knots and not realize it. Um, I'm asking layered questions, but it obviously has a fully author- full authority digital fly by wire control system. Um, really? What what does that mean to you as the pilot? Um, what sort of cues is the airplane giving you that it's in different states of of AOA? What, yeah. what was it like? Yeah, it's an excellent question. So, um, the the full authority um, fly by wire system had built in safeguards. So, when you got to a certain AOA, and I can't remember what it was, uh, you would lose the auto trim. So, all of a sudden, you're flying along slowly, and you're going, "Why is the nose so high in the air?" And then all of a sudden, the, the stick comes forward, and you're pulling back, and you go, "Oh yeah, I'm only doing 120 knots." <laughs> and it was the same thing when you're when you're doing the maneuvering. So, you know when when you're when you're pulling at high AOA, it requires a significant force on the stick to keep the stick back because you're losing the auto trim. It says, no, no, you don't want auto trim right now. That's your worst enemy. So now you're into fully uh, manual um, with with protections, mm-hmm. but you're you're basically flying a manual type airplane. So you would feel it. Uh, the other thing was <clears throat> when you got above about twenty to twenty five degrees AOA, the airplane would start shuddering. And what was happening is it's the airflow coming off the leading edge extensions of the airplane. And you can see that they, they extend right up to the front of the cockpit, but the air curls around that and it hits the, the vertical stabilizers in the back. And on one of our, I think it was probably the first trip we did on the, uh, on the conversion course on the F-18, we would get into a high angle of attack situation. And the instructor would say in the back seat, he would say, okay, I have control. Now you look back at the tails. And you could you could turn around, you could see the tails because of the bubble canopy, and and they were doing this. It was scary to see them. Wow. Yeah. So after about, uh, I think we had them for about three or four years. They discovered some significant cracking uh, in the tails and also in the laundrons and the fuselage. So they actually grounded the fleet for I think about a year and put all kinds of reinforcements in. And they also put the um, what are called the lex fences on the front edge of the uh, leading edge extension. So it's these two blades that sit up on the on the um, lex, and that uh, detours the air. Yeah, you can see it just above your left shoulder there. That that detours the air flow outboard of the uh, vertical stems. And it was scary to see. Like I, I flew it before they had the Lex fences in, and you know the tails are they're they're no kidding. They're doing this. You know, wow. and you're going, ooh, that's probably not good. 
yeah. did, did you have then uh seven was it 7.33 g and then a 9g override something like that um could you could yeah you... yeah so that that's a great segue so um the the airplane was limited to 7.5 g um and i think the initial models didn't have yeah they didn't have the g limiter or they didn't have the override to it i i guess they didn't have the g limiter. no they, no i think they had the g limiter right from the beginning uh, maybe they didn't have the override so we we had the paddle switch on the front of the stick and you could override the 7.5 g limit because normally you know unless you really snatched on it quickly it wouldn't go above 7.5 g um and another uh, it's another unfortunate story and he was a friend of mine as well uh he was on the course on the first uh f-18 operational squadron course so this was the first course that they put through to generate an operational squadron they were going to be an air defense squadron in canada um so they're out doing the intercept practices with the f-18 against the t-33 which which was acting as a a target <clears throat> and it was a cloudy day i don't know what the ceiling was maybe 2,000 feet so the t-33 was operating beneath the cloud and the f-18 profile was to come slicing down through the cloud onto the tail of the uh, t-33 and these guys had you know maybe 20 hours on the f-18 and they were sending them out solo to do this so the warning flag should have been going off all over the place that this is probably not the best way to do this so he sliced down through the cloud uh, the t-33 pilot was looking for him over his shoulder because he knew that he was coming down and he watched him uh, hit the ground so they had a pretty good idea what happened well I don't know if it was before or after, but within a, you know, within a space of probably 30 minutes, another solo pilot had done the same thing. And I think he pulled 11 and a half G and missed the ground. Wow. So, yeah. So I don't know. I can't remember whether the paddle switch was there or it had different limitations before or after, but you know, the other pilot was the guy that was very fortunate that he, uh, he wow. didn't end up in the same position. Yeah. It's crazy things like, you know, why were they doing that in the first place? And especially with a solo student, you know, at least put an instructor in the back seat because we had all kinds of two seat airplanes. It wasn't like we were short of airplanes, but, you know, put an instructor in the back seat because we know this is potentially a, a very um, dangerous program. It raises in my mind a, a question about how you um, uh, sort of operationalize, let's say, a new weapon system like the f-18 you're coming from f f-101s f-5s um you know sort of old older generation you know sort of what are they second yeah. second generation fighters to a new third generation fourth generation fighter um are you are you sort of then in the canadian air force are you having to develop all this stuff yourself from scratch is this a symptom of the fact that you're doing that or are you are you bringing in u.s navy tactics and then saying are they giving oh, yeah, you their yeah. tactics and you're saying well okay well because it's you know it's a long-range radar you've now got the um aim 7 yep. sparrow and then the aim 120 is going to come yep. along at some point in the future um how much of it do you have to make up yourselves how much of it do you take from other places and then just modify yeah so when when the um, f-18s were delivered um mcdonald douglas at the time they they provided us with um you know the technical manuals for the airplane and the u.s navy provided us with the tactical uh tac manuals to employ the airplane um and plus we had canadian pilots on exchange with navy and marine corps f-18 squadrons 
prior to us having them delivered in Canada. So we had a, and, and the, the initial cadre of instructors on the training squadron, um, they had been going down to the States to Navy bases, uh, flying the simulators and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, coordinating with them. So we, you know, that's the great thing about NATO and, and NORAD. We do have a very good relationship with our allies and they're willing to, sh to share, you know, huge, huge amounts of information with us because we're, our, you know, we're allies, right? So they want to see us succeed uh, just as well. And so we had a very good start. Um, but now you're integrating the uh, Voodoo pilots. So this is in the instructor cadre. You're integrating the Voodoo pilots, the F-104 pilots. So on one hand, you've got air defense who do a little bit of air combat, but no bombing. On the other side, you've got bomber-only pilots who never really done any air-to-air -air work. And then you got the F-5 pilots who do everything but nothing well. <laughs> the jack-of-all-trades. And then you've got a couple of guys who are coming off the Hornet down in the States, and they're going, no, no, guys, you can't do it this way. You know, like, I know how that you're interpreting what the Navy is saying, but that's not how it works, you know. And here's a classic example. I mean, you know, the the... F-18, the one that we have is the Navy version, right? It's the carrier capable. It's not the YF-17, which was the, you know, I, what do they call it? The Cobra or something, which is the yeah. land version. And so, you know, Canada gets the F-18 and they go, okay, well, it's, you know, the, the flight controls are integrated with the landing system. So the flight control laws change once you get the weight on wheel switches. They go, okay, we have to do carrier landings on airfields so we make sure the weight on wheel switch is activated so the flight control laws change. And it's, you know, like that That in itself has caused a couple of crashes because um, if you have a big crosswind, um, you know, the typical pilot will put into wind aileron and opposite rudder to keep it straight, right? And then if you, um, when you land, typically the into wind wing will lift you know so it'll, it'll come up well if you jam the aileron into that the rudder will go that way as well hmm. and then you go off the side of the runway and that's happened many times in the f-18 wow. so you have to be careful with it you know this is it, it, it's there to protect you but it can it can kill you just as quickly yeah. wow. so getting back to my story the canadian said okay well we got to do carrier landings you know every landing's got to be a carrier landing. you can't do greasers because you're not going to make that weight on wheel switch so <laughs> We had a U.S. Navy exchange pilot who come off the, uh, you know, off the Navy uh, Hornet, and he's now an instructor with us on the F-18. And he goes, "Why do you guys slam the airplane into the runway all the time?" And we go, "Well, you have to get the weight on wheel switches." He goes, "No, no, 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 no." <laughs> so when you land the airplane, the uh, the throttles are stopped at flight idle instead of ground idle, and then as soon as you make the weight on wheel switch you can pull the throttles back to ground idle. So he goes, just, just keep your hands on the throttle. Do the lightest landing that you can possibly imagine and then see if the ground stops come off. And the F-18 actually had a G meter for, for measuring the landing G. And that was so that, you know, if you really slammed it on on the carrier, they could decide whether they needed to inspect the airplane or just send it back up flying. And I don't know what the G limit was. So we used to have competitions to see who could get the lowest G on landing. And it would the the recording would stay up for the next pilot. So you go in and you go to the data page. You go, oh damn, he got a point one. <laughs> <laughs> so go with a point five or point zero five. You know, 
Yeah, but most of the guys wouldn't believe that. You know, they they were still doing carrier landings. You know, twenty years later, and that and it causes a huge problem. We had a you know a couple of, of uh, runway excursions because guys would you know they would do these carrier landings, especially in big crosswinds, and the airplane would get extremely unstable because it has these big floaty landing gear, yeah. and all the flight controls that are trying to figure out what you really want to do as to what they're want to do to protect the airplane, and they would depart the runway, and I watched one of them. You know, I was right behind him, and it was spectacular. He went off into the grass at 140 knots, and I was like, "My God!" Did he punch out? So, no, stay, stay no, with the airplane. Wow. Yeah, and, and and the first thing you you know, it's it boldface. It says if you depart the runway in an uncontrolled um, situation, eject. You know, not maybe consider eject. It was an <laughs> order to eject. So I I see him go off the runway. And there was dirt and mud spraying, you know, probably 40 feet in the air. And I go, he's not ejecting. He's not ejecting. You know, so I expected to see the airplane tumble into a big ball of flames. But um, the the infield was um, absolutely saturated and it was it was quite soft. So he just went zinging off the side of the runway and he said it was quite smooth. So he said, OK, well, I'm going to stay with it. So he, he eventually comes to a stop in the infield and the emergency egress is either open the canopy with the electric switch, which takes, you know, 15 seconds or jettison it. So he pulls the jettison handle to get rid of it. And the jettison handle didn't work. There was a problem with the explosive charge. Wow. The now he could have ejected through the canopy with the seat, but that's not, you know, that's not ideal. So he did the ground egress. And by the time I was behind him, and by the time I did the, uh, the overshoot, I could see him hoofing it across the infield. So I go, okay, he's, he's okay. Wow. <laughs> Did, did that result in so? Did that result in a change then uh, in in terms of landing technique? Did this? I mean, is is this decentralized? Does the squadron boss decide what you use? Do you no. decide it as individual pilots? Does the Canadian Air Force decide no. it? What? Yeah, so it's it's driven by the uh, the oversight, you know, the, the sort of tactical oversight of the F eighteen fleet, um, and. You know, I had previous, so this was on the operational squadron, but I had previously been an instructor pilot. So I, I spoke with the, you know, with the guy that went off the side of the runway and I said, well, tell me what happened. You know, and he explained what he did. And I said, so are they still, you know, this was, um, this was after I'd finished two tours from the training squadron. So I'd been out of the loop for uh, probably six years at that point. Um, so I said, are they still teaching that on, on 410, you know, in the training squadron that you should, you know, you should do firm landings? He goes, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we had the uh, accident review board and I went in to talk to the um, investigator and I said, you know, we can't keep doing this. Like, this is crazy. There is no reason to do hard landings in the F-18, you know, and I explained it to him. They said, I'm not making this up. Like I was an instructor on the F-18 and the system wouldn't, wouldn't believe us, you know, because somewhere 15 years ago, it was written that you should do hard, you know, firm landings so that you uh, activate the weight on wheel switch. Wow. But guys would bounce, you know, and then the, the airplane's doing this as it's bouncing, going from one mushy landing gear to the other mushy landing gear. And now the flight controls are all over the world. You yeah. know? So you're now along for the ride, basically. You're out of the loop. Wow. It, it, it was uh, crazy stuff. Thanks for tuning in to 10% True. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to subscribe, and if you're on YouTube, hit the bell button to make sure you get notified of the next episode. Thanks, and take care.